20 years ago, I think it was 1999, that uh, Christmas of that year, my sister and I had waited for a gift that we had been waiting for for months. Uh, earlier that year, the Nintendo 64 was released. And uh, all of you other millennials are like, yeah, that was awesome. That was 99 was a good year. The Nintendo 64 was, was maybe not like the premier or elite gaming system, but it was pretty cool. And in 1999, Nintendo released the Nintendo 64 with the Atomic Purple controller package. Now, that doesn't mean anything to any of you unless you had one and you know how cool that controller was. It was the same controller as it was for all the other Nintendo 64 units, units except for it was kind of a, a frosted, clear, translucent purple, and, uh, and I wanted it bad. And my sister and I, I think, knew that around Christmas time, you know, we usually could expect, you know, a, a, a one kind of a generous gift from our parents. But this year, uh, in 1999, I, I think we, we were able to, like, combine forces. And we thought, you know, if we go in on this together, we could get a really good gift that we could share at Christmas. And so we started making our case for the N64 Atomic Purple package for Christmas. And lo and behold, Christmas morning, after months and months of waiting, we woke up, walked into the living room, and what was there under the Christmas tree but the Nintendo 64 Atomic Purple package with Banjo-Kazooie and Mario 64 and Mario Kart and NHL uh, 99 and all these other games that we enjoyed playing for years and years and would forget about and then every now and then dust off the Nintendo and play it some more. That was a good gift. We enjoyed the gift of that Nintendo 64 that year. We waited for that good gift for what felt like an eternity. You know, when you're waiting for something good to come, uh, it, it can often feel uh, like you're just waiting forever for that gift to arrive, for that expectation to be fulfilled. At Christmas, though, we focus our attention not upon gifts like Nintendos or Playstations or Xboxes or whatever else we're looking forward to at that time, but we set our attention upon a different gift, a greater gift than things that show up under trees at the end of December. We focus our attention upon the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. I think, though, it is often easy for us to lose sight of just how good a gift Christ is. Because we don't have the sensation or the experience of having had to wait for a long, long time for that gift to come. And yet, God's people throughout the Old Testament, His people of Israel, did have to wait for centuries, millennia even, for Christ to come. We know from Scripture, as we reflect upon it every Christmas season, that Jesus is the gift of a Messiah, of a promised Savior from God who has anticipated and sought after, waited for, for millennia by God's people. The centuries that were spent waiting for Jesus, however, were not spent in vain. They weren't pointless years of waiting because Christ is the greatest gift imaginable, and he is well worth waiting to receive. And so while we see millennia of the uh, go by among the people of Israel waiting for Jesus, waiting for their Messiah to come, these are not wasted years in waiting. This morning, we're going to look at several passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, This is a Christmas series I've entitled Good Gifts, and our sermon today, my sermon today is entitled Good Gifts Are Worth Waiting For, uh, or 
uh, alternatively titled Stephen's Annual Obligatory Love Your Old Testament Sermon. <laughs> I would hope that as we explore four different passages, four different uh, places in the Old Testament that point to the hopeful expectation of Christ, that we would be encouraged. That we would be encouraged that now that Christ has come, and not just that he was born, but that he lived his life without sin, that he died on the cross to pay our penalty for sin, and that he is raised from the dead, that the wait for our Messiah is over. We no longer have to wait for a Redeemer. And we no longer have to wait to rejoice in God's promises knowing that good gifts are worth waiting for and that God's people waited millennia for Christ to come, we can now rejoice freely without any hesitation. I'd like to look at four promises that Christ fulfills and the amount of time that was waited for their fulfillment this morning. If you would, in your Bibles, join me, uh, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 34. You may want to stick a thumb or a note or something in Isaiah chapter 9, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and in Genesis chapter 3. You should have uh, those passages listed somewhere in your worship guide so you can kind of look ahead and see where we're going. But beginning in Ezekiel 34, we find the promise of a good shepherd who was waited for for 500 years in a time of wandering I'd like to take you back in time about 26, 25, 2600 years to between five and 600 years before the time when Jesus was born. The place that we're going to in our minds is the once glorious but now lonely southern kingdom of Judah, the sisters of the northern kingdom of Israel that was once a united kingdom under King David and Solomon, but after Solomon's death was divided in two. Now the only remaining kingdom is the southern kingdom of Judah, and they are alone mourning the fact that their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom of Israel had been carried off by the savage Assyrians about a hundred years before that. The people of Judah were like vulnerable sheep who had been conquered and scattered uh, by the Babylonians and those who were left behind in Jerusalem were left behind in a city that was just a shadow of what it had formerly been. The people of Judah faced a problem. The problem was not only were the Babylonians invading and beginning to take people off into exile, but the problem was that even in the midst of all of that, their own religious leaders, the leaders in the temple of God in Jerusalem, had, had neglected their duty to care for the people of Israel spiritually and instead had been making themselves fat and comfortable off of the lives of those who are under their care. They were wicked shepherds eating the flock. In the middle of this problem, In the middle of the devastation being experienced by the people of Judah, God gives a promise through his prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16, and then 22 through 24, we read this promise of God. Listen, God says through Ezekiel, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In verse 22, he continues the word of the Lord. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. 
and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is an awesome promise to a people scattered, wandering, without religious leaders, a promise from God to be their shepherd, to care for them. But there's one big question that remains between these, these, these verses, this, this promise of God to bring a shepherd to the people of Judah. The question is, who would the shepherd be? With a promise like that, with a promise of a person to come to save the people, to care for their souls, to, to guard them and to deal with, with them in justice and, and in righteousness, the, the one question on the mind of all of those who still lived in Judah and who heard this promise was, who is the shepherd? Who will come to save us? And when will he come? Will the shepherd be God? Well, verse 15 seems to say so, doesn't it? Verse 15 of Ezekiel 34, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Seems that God is the one who wants to shepherd his people of Israel. But then verse 23 seems to say that that the shepherd is is maybe not God, but maybe David or, or a descendant of David. David as king had been dead for almost 500 years at this point. Uh, so the expectation it would be a son of David, someone in the lineage of David. Verse 23 says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David shall be prince among them. So who will the shepherd be? Will it be God? Or will it be David or or, or one of David's descendants? We see over the course of time, about 500 years after this promise was given, that the answer to that question is both, is yes. Is the shepherd God or is the shepherd a son of David? The answer is yes. And, And there's not two shepherds, but one. One shepherd who is a descendant of David and who is God himself. How can this be? Well, Matthew in his gospel begins his story of Jesus's life this way. He goes all the way to the the beginning and and even a little bit further back than that in talking about Jesus's life. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is his family tree. He is the son of David. He's offspring of David, the king. So Jesus already seems to fulfill that aspect of being a, a, uh, a descendant of David. Mark, in his gospel, begins by telling us that Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's also the son of God, that he is somehow both. He is fully divine and fully human. And this is a wonderful mystery of the gospel of Scripture that we hold to be true at the same time, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, is fully human and fully God at the same time. There's nothing like this in all of our existence uh, beside Jesus that we can compare him to. It is a mystery that scripture declares and one that we receive by faith, and yet it is wonderfully true. Matthew doesn't just declare that Jesus was the son of David and Mark declare him that he's the son of God. That in itself is not enough to tell us that Jesus is the answer to this promise of a good shepherd. Jesus himself goes a little further, though, to, to flesh out for, for those who are around him and, and witnessing him to explain his, his shepherd's heart. 
We read in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, that as Jesus is fulfilling his earthly ministry, as he's going around all of the cities and, and villages in Galilee, he's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And in Matthew 9, 36, we read this, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And into this context of spiritual wandering among the people of Israel, the people living in Galilee, the people of Judea and Samaria to whom Jesus was ministering, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd, he says in an extended sort of teaching time in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, these words. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, the, the, the under shepherd, the one that, that's just hired to, to fill a gap for a while, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. He's a wicked shepherd and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, Jesus says, because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 500 years before Jesus was born, the people of Judah were wandering without faithful, caring, loving, spiritual leaders. And into that time of wandering, that that period of, of, of discontent and confusion, God speaks a promise to his people that he himself would be their shepherd. Now, there were many noble shepherds in Israel's history. Moses, Joshua, David were some, to name the most prominent maybe. But Jesus in John 10 says to those listening, I am the good shepherd. This statement is a statement of exclusive right to the title, Good Shepherd. When Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd, he is saying, I am the only Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd that you have been waiting for for 500 years. I'm the one. I'm the Son of God and Son of David. I am the divine human uh, Messiah that God promised to shepherd His flock, to gather them together in safety and in security from your greatest enemy. 500 years is a long time to wait for a good gift. But it's not the longest that the people of Israel, that God's people would wait for a gift. They waited longer. They, They waited, in fact, for 700 years in times of trouble for not not just a good shepherd, but for a king forever. Go back 200 years or so before the time of Ezekiel to about 700 B.C. Moving north now from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel. And there at that time, the savage Assyrians, the Assyrians were a a warlike, warmongering nation who were feared throughout most of the known world at the time. The Assyrians were heads of their enemies on sticks outside their city gates kind of people. When they come knocking on the door, you are disinclined to answer it. The northern kingdom of Israel, 700 years before Jesus, is watching Assyria, these savage people gathering together on the horizon of their border. Bloodthirsty armies 
coming together, coalescing, preparing to invade Israel. The Israelites themselves, those people of the northern kingdom of Israel, had for 300 years been led not by good kings, but by wicked kings. You can read all through Second Chronicles of all of the wicked kings of Israel who constantly and time after time led the people of Israel to worship gods who are not the one true God of Israel. They led the people to despise the very God for whom they were named. You know, the name Israel, the word Israel means he who strives with, he who wrestles with God. And the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel had wrestled really hard against God in all the wrong ways, leading the people into times of trouble. And now to the, to the gates of their enemy, or to say it differently, they, they led their enemy to their own city gates. And so here's the problem that the people 700 years before Jesus faced. That bloodthirsty Assyria was there foaming at the mouth to take over this people, to conquer them, to destroy them, to scatter them. And in this time of trouble, in this time of trial, this time of fear, prophets like Isaiah spoke for God to the people. And prophets like Isaiah did not necessarily have initially a very good word to give the people. Their prophecy often started with, you're about to be destroyed. In fact, you will be. But there's good news. Even though God would allow his people to be conquered, to be scattered by savage nations, uh, savage nations that, that God would make a promise to gather them back together, to preserve a faithful remnant of people, to bring back to be his people. And so in this time of trouble, even as Isaiah is, is prophesying that the people will be destroyed, he gives them also a word of hope, something to get them through what is coming. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, we read these very familiar uh, words that are often read at Christmas time. Isaiah prophesies this. He says, for to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That means wonder-working or miraculous advisor, that this, this promised coming son, baby, would rule and reign and perform miraculous signs as king over Israel. Unlike the wicked kings who led them astray, he would be a wonderful counselor. His name would be, as Isaiah says, mighty God, which means he would be a valiant warrior on the behalf of his people. He would be called everlasting father. Now we, as, as Trinitarian Christians, sometimes read back into Isaiah 9, this uh, title of Everlasting Father, to understand that this to be a, uh, speaking about God the Father. But this is not a reference to God the Father, for in ancient times, often kings were called fathers of their people. And the promise of this baby who is coming, the son who will be born, who, uh, upon whose shoulders the government will rest, he will be called everlasting father. This means a king forever. This Messiah would be a ruler who would reign for all eternity. He would, not, he would not die or cease to reign like David or Solomon or any of the other kings before, but he would be a king forever. His name, Isaiah says, would be Prince of Peace He would be the one who brings an end to all war and strife. Can you imagine being 
part of a people who are looking at bloodthirsty soldiers on your northernmost border, ready to tear you limb from limb, and hearing this promise, he'll be prince of peace. In a time of war, in a time of, of, of confusion and, and violence and defeat, to, to hear about a promised king who would be the prince of peace, that'll, that'll give life to your soul. That'll put light in your eyes for a minute. Isaiah continues in verse 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. This anointed, this promised Savior, this Messiah who is going to come to rule forever as a king forever over the people of Israel, uh, would be one who would, who would rule and reign with no increase to the, with no end to the increase of, of peace that he would bring in the world and for his people. He would be, as Isaiah says, a king in the line of David, a rightful descendant and heir to the throne, who would rule as king over God's people. His reign is marked by eternal justice and righteousness, things that people long for when they're being beaten up and destroyed and scattered by vicious enemies. And it's not through the efforts of man, it's not through the energies of the people of Israel, scattered and discarded as they would be, that would accomplish this promise. No, it would be the very will and promise of God himself that would bring this about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In a time of trouble and war, and uncertainty, the promise of a king forever, a forever king would have rung loudly in the ears of the Israelites and it would have caused them to long for this king to come and to come quickly. This is a good gift of God. When will it come? And for 700 years, they would wait in continued times of trouble and trial until a child was born, until a son was given. We read in Luke's gospel the story of Jesus' birth and his announcement shortly thereafter. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14, we read these words. In the same region of Bethlehem where Jesus was born, there were on that night of his birth shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great Fear, like anybody is, who, who is anywhere close to the presence of God. And the angel said to these terrified shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a son of David, an heir to the throne, who is Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord, the one that God promised, the baby that you've been waiting for for 700 years. The king forever is born today. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find him as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host, an army of angelic beings praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. Those Israelites of that northern kingdom who are about to be attacked, about to be conquered and devastated by their enemies to the north, Assyria, who were promised a king who would come 
and who would be called the Prince of Peace, and of whom the increase of his government and of peace would be, that there would be no end to that, are now made to rejoice because a child had been born and a son had been given. His name is Christ the Lord. 700 years is a long time to wait for a good gift like a king forever. But it's not the longest that Israel had to wait. It's not the longest that the people of God had to wait for a good gift. In fact, they had waited at least twice as long, at least 1,400, maybe 1,500 years in, in whispers, in, 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 in near silence for not just a shepherd, not just a king forever, but for a prophet, for someone who would speak the words of God. Going back in time another 700 years or so from the moment when Isaiah promised this son who would be born, we go back to the year 15 or 1400 B.C. The place is not yet called Israel. And in fact, the the people are not even uh, really known as Israel in the world yet. They're just called Hebrews. And these are a ragtag group of people who had been brought out of slavery about 40 years before. And they are now sitting at the eastern edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that will soon take on the name of the people, the land that will soon be called Israel. And there is the people, there's the Hebrews gathered. These Hebrews who had for 40 years been wandering in the wild deserts of Sinai, waiting for their parents' unfaithful and disobedient generation to pass so that they could follow God faithfully as a new generation dedicated to service of God, to go into his people, uh, go into the land that he had promised. As they stand there waiting, they also have a problem. People in Ezekiel's day had the problem of Wicked shepherds who were fattening themselves off of the flock. The people in Isaiah's day had a problem of of, uh, advancing armies ready to invade them. With the people of the Hebrews, before they would be known as Israel, they now, on the edge of the promised land, also face a problem. The problem is that Moses, their great leader, their spokesman for the Lord, the one who spoke to God for them and spoke to them for God, Moses was not going into the promised land with them. Moses was about to leave. He was going to die. And, and with that, his, his leadership among the people of Israel would end. Truthfully, even if Moses had gone into the promised land with the people, he would have died eventually, and the people would have been leaderless there too. The problem is they don't have a, a leader, a spokesman, a prophet to guide them forever. And into this, promise, into this problem, God gives a promise of, of, of a prophet, of one who will speak for him to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 uh, and 18, as Moses is kind of giving his farewell instruction to the Hebrews on the outskirts of Canaan, we read this. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Verse 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. God saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There were many prophets in Israel from this time that Moses gives this promise until Christ would come. But none of these prophets ever rose to the likeness or even surpassed the power of Moses. 
We read at the end of Deuteronomy, the same book in which God gives this promise of a prophet, which some, some believe that these last verses of Deuteronomy were, were added uh, even after the people of Israel returned from being exiles in Babylon. We read in Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12, that there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like Moses for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in all the sight of Israel. The prophet hasn't come yet. So the question rises in the minds and the hearts of the people of Israel. Even after they go into the land, even as they're watching the, the miraculous ministry of prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Hosea. This question rising in their hearts and minds as to when will the prophet come? We've had prophets, we've had those who have spoken to us from God, but, but none like Moses, much less greater than him. When will he come? When will the one that God promised 1,500 years ago show up? In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 45, just as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he makes friends with some stinky fishermen. One of them is named Philip. Philip spends a day with Jesus, learning from him, listening to him, asking him questions. And after spending that day and all night with Jesus, the next day he runs to his brother Nathaniel and says, as we read in John 1.45, he says, Nathaniel, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him, Nathaniel, the prophet. A millennia and a half we've been waiting for. He's here. He's come. I've seen him. I've eaten with him. I got to talk with him. He, he, he taught me. He's here, Nathaniel. The promise is fulfilled. Do you see? Do you see? Peter, the disciple of Jesus, after spending three or more years with Christ, after seeing Jesus die on the cross, after seeing him be raised from the dead, Peter, in Acts chapter 3, preaches the first Christian sermon in all of history in the middle of Jerusalem. And as he is closing his sermon, he says this in Acts 3, verses 22 through 24. Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You remember this promise, don't you people? Peter is saying, you shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from among the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying the promise you've waited for, for a prophet who would speak the words of God to you, who would speak as God in your presence. Those promises have been fulfilled and not in Samuel, not by Isaiah, not by Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Micah or any of those, not by John the Baptist, but by Jesus. He's not just any prophet. He's the prophet, capital P, the one we have been waiting for for a millennia and a half. The implication that Peter is making is this. The wait is over. The one who speaks the words of God is God himself in flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the prophet who's not just like Moses. He's better than Moses because he's God in flesh speaking to us. That's a good gift worth waiting for. But you know what? 
it's not the longest that God's people would wait for a good gift. 500 years is a long time to wait for a good gift. 700 years. Is, it feels almost like an eternal. We can't even fathom what it is to wait for 700 years for anything. 1,500 years is an exceedingly long time to wait for a good gift, for a promise of God to come to fruition. But in reality, there's a greater promise yet. A greater gift yet that the people of God have been waiting for, that all humanity has been waiting for, not for five, not for seven, not for 1,500 years, but for more than 4,000 years of our history, at least. 4,000 years spent in brokenness, waiting for the greatest promise of all, the serpent crusher. We go back all the way to the beginning at least over 4,000 4, years before Jesus was born. 4,000 years. That's, that's twice as long as it's been from the birth of Jesus to the present day. The place is not Israel or Judah or on the outskirts of Canaan, but the place is in uh, the very home that God made for our first parents, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. And the people that we see are, are, are the two people from whom every tribe, nation, and tongue would spring, Adam and Eve, our first parents. And there in the garden, we know the story that one day Eve was out doing her work in the garden, Adam with her, and a serpent came and deceived Eve, enticed her to eat from the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from, she took the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and the real problem began. In that moment, as Adam and Eve disobeyed God's only command, everything came crashing down. Their fellowship with God had become enmity with him. Their shameless nakedness had turned into self-conscious fear. Their idyllic marriage, now torn by strife, joy and life in the presence of God had turned into terror and death with one small act of disobedience. And into that moment of total cosmic brokenness, God gives his first promise. In Genesis 3, verse 15, as God is pronouncing a curse upon the serpent who deceived Eve, he says this, Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and her offspring, her seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As part of his curse upon the serpent, with Adam and Eve, they're present. They're listening. They're seeing all of this happen. God promises a day that will come wherein the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Though in that process, the offspring of the woman would himself have his own heel bruised by that serpent. It is a, it is a mortal wound inflicted upon the serpent, but he himself would receive a, a wound in turn. The enmity that would exist between the children of the woman and the children of, of the serpent would be intense. There would be massive spiritual conflict between humanity and the work and will of Satan, the serpent, in the world. But into this moment of brokenness, when all of God's good design had come crashing down in that one act of disobedience, God gives this promise of a serpent crusher who is coming. 
In a moment of great despair, God gives a promise of, of, of abounding hope. And the question that, that is asked, beginning in Genesis 3.15, throughout all of, of the first five books of the Old Testament, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is this. Who is the serpent crusher? When will he come? When will he crush the head of the one who seeks our destruction? For 4,000 years at least, God's people had been asking that question. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3, verse 16, that the seed of Genesis, the offspring of the woman that is talked about and expected and promised through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down the line, that that seed of Genesis, that that, that offspring of the woman is not just any one person, but it is Christ. He says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is, Paul says, Christ Jesus the Lord. If we are to see, and I think we are, that the seed of Abraham is the same seed, the same offspring of the woman, which makes sense because the, that word offspring is used all over the place through Genesis. Once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. If it is true that Abraham's offspring, the one that is promised to his Christ, is the same as the woman's offspring who would crush the head of the serpent and have his own heel bruised at the same time, then we ought to conclude that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is indeed fulfilled in the greatest sense, in the perfect sense, by Jesus, as Paul says, certainly also. Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 refers to Satan as that ancient serpent before describing his ultimate defeat at the hands of Christ. Jesus is the serpent crusher. Amen. On Friday night we had Christmas camp with like 80 kids in the church uh, uh, just making crafts and other things and I could share a Christmas story with the kids and told them that the Christmas story is, is much older than you think. The Christmas story is actually infinitely, infinitely old. It, it goes all the way back to the, to the beginning of humanity in the promise of this serpent crusher. The title Christ, the title Messiah, promised one, prophet, good shepherd, king forever. These are all good and, and meaningful titles for Jesus. But there may be none that that inspires in the heart of sinful men more confidence and, and feelings of victory than this title, Serpent Crusher. Four thousand years waiting for the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat sin and death and, and overcome the brokenness of the world. Four thousand years is a long, long time to wait. How long is too long to wait? I suppose it depends on what you're waiting for. In the case of God's people in the Old Testament, what they were waiting for was massive. The promises that God had given and had snowballed in the history of the people of Israel were huge. The picture of of God's redemption, of God's rescue for his people was, after 4,000 years, massive. 
A shepherd who would guard and protect them. A king who would reign forever in righteousness. A prophet who would speak the words of God himself to them. A serpent crusher to destroy not only the great tempter, Satan himself, but also to uh, put to an end our greatest enemy, the death that is deserved for our sin and rebellion against God. Each of these promises in and of themselves is massive. It's huge. But when we find, as the Old Testament shows us, that each of these promises is bound up, each of these promises is fulfilled in God's infinitely ancient plan to be himself the answer to each of these problems, well, when we see the awesome goodness of that gift, it makes waiting for centuries, it makes waiting for millennia possible. The unimaginable excellence of the gift that God promised and reaffirmed, and reaffirmed, and expounded upon, makes the wait all the more worth it. Now, friends, here's the supremely good news for all of us here today. The wait is over. And the wait has been over. The wait has been, the wait for a a serpent crusher, a prophet, a king forever, a good shepherd, has been over for 2,000 years. We have been done waiting for two millennia. Your need for a shepherd to guard your soul, to to bind up your spiritual wounds and bring spiritual wholeness to your life. Your need for one to watch over you in a way that no one can watch over your life has been answered. Christ the good shepherd has been born. Your need for a king forever, for someone to rule and to reign in times of trouble in your life. Your need for one to set direction for, for your life, the one to save you from your enemies, your greatest enemies, which are sin and death, your need for a king to rule and reign over your will in a a way that leads you to righteousness and and closeness with God, your need for a forever king has been fulfilled. For 2,000 years, he's been here. More still, your need for a prophet. You've been waiting for ages, decades, to hear a word from God, to hear him speak to you, to, to communicate with the God who made you, your, your heart's longing to know him in truth. Dear friend, the wait for that is over. Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, speaks words to us from God, not because he's just a, a, a messenger pigeon, but because he's God in flesh. His words are God's words. And as Scripture tells us, he reveals the Father to us. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to hear from God, introduce yourself to Jesus, Amen. the prophet greater than Moses. Dear friend, your need for victory over temptation and besetting sins, and the brokenness that comes with rebellion against God, and just the evil in the world, the sins you commit against others, and the sins that other people commit against you, your need for deliverance from brokenness in life, from a life that doesn't work, because we have, we have eschewed and we've cast away the God's design for how we ought to live, your need for sin and death, and for that constant, annoying tempter, Satan to be crushed, has been fulfilled. There's victory in Jesus. 
your wait for a serpent crusher is over. He's come. He's lived his life without sin. He died on the cross to pay for your penalty, to pay the penalty of your death for sin and was raised from the dead so that whoever would place faith in him, turning from sin, returning to a a, a life of obedience and submission to God, trusting that Jesus was not just the son of God, but that he was also raised from the dead, is saved. That is the promise. If you need to know the fulfilled promise of a serpent crusher in your life, trust Jesus today. The wait is over. And it's not freshly over. The wait's been over for 2,000 years. We have had two millennia of rejoicing in the fulfilled promises of God. Those that come to perfect completion in Jesus the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Dear friend, are you like me, follower of Christ who's received a good gift of salvation, like that Nintendo 64, and it was really, really fun for like three, four, six months. After a while, you beat all the games and got all the trophies or whatever it is, collected all the coins. You kind of let that good gift sit on a shelf for a while, collecting dust, forgetting how long you waited for it, how great you felt when you received it. Dear friend, have you treated Jesus like that Nintendo 64 and put him up on a shelf to collect dust, forgetting how great a promise that he is to you? Dear Christian, you who have lost your love for Christ, you who have let your your excitement and inspiration that comes from Jesus to grow dim and to grow dull, take him down off the shelf, dust him off, let him shine with all of his glory in your heart, afresh and anew this Christmas. Good gifts are worth waiting for. Dear friends, the, the, the wait is over. God's promises are always good. And His timing is always right. Perhaps you've been waiting a long time to receive the promise, the gift of salvation that God promises through faith in Jesus. Listen, the wait is over. Today's the day. Give your heart and life to Christ, the one who fulfills all of these promises of God and more, the one who gave His life to rescue you from sin, the shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep. Trust Jesus today. Dear Christian, fall in love with Jesus again today. The good gift whom we no longer have to wait for, but only willingly receive by faith in him. Let's pray together.